0: from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grok.
1: That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, Eyes. In addition to Amir Axel, will join us to discuss the Jesuit and the Skull. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000,
0: and the world famous question a week,
1: coming right up, here, on Berkeley Grok's.
0: Welcome back to Brother Drops. I'm Frank
1: Ling. And I guess I'm Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Uh,
0: you're the man.
1: I may be the man, but I'm not the man with the bionic eyes.
0: Are these also the ones with laser beams that shoot out <laughs> when you're angry?
1: Well, only if you're lucky. <laughs> I guess that's the optional extras. <laughs> oh. But obviously, researchers for quite some time have been trying to develop artificial prostheses to replace visual systems. Right. And a team at Harvard Medical School has tried an approach where they've inserted microelectrodes into the primary visual cortex which is the main part of the brain responsible for processing visual signals and stimulating these nerve cells with electrical impulses and basically you have some sort of photodetector as your glasses piping that signal straight into the brain Mm -hmm. the researchers have been able to get uh, lab animals to track pre-selected artificial visual signals with their eyes just as though if they were watching lights flashing on a real video screen Huh. But they've done this by not putting it into the cortex, but by putting it into a particular part of the structure called the lateral geniculate nucleus.
0: Are these areas around the eye or is it in the brain?
1: This is actually part of what's called the thalamus. Okay. So it's the way station between the eyes and the brain. And it's thought that if you target the thalamus, it might be a much easier system than actually going for the cortex, which is a little tougher to understand. I see. So far, it looks uh, pretty promising because no one's really targeted the thalamus before. Right. Most people have looked at the cortex. I thought the
0: thalamus was overrated. Is it sexy?
1: Any sexier, and it wouldn't even be fit for the brain. <laughs> the work was done by John Pizaris and co-workers at Harvard Medical School and published in our very favorite journal...
0: Oh, the Proceedings! ...of the National... Academy... ...of Sciences. PNAS.
1: And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Amir will join us to discuss the Jesuit and the Skull. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Gronk's Science Show. Well the clash between science and religion is an ongoing issue, one that is particularly vexing for those who attempt to synthesize these philosophies into one world view. These issues form the backdrop of the life of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, famed Jesuit priest and scientist whose discovery of the Peking man fossils changed many views on the origins of man. We'll join us today to discuss the life and science of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin is Dr. Amir Axel. Dr. Axel was formerly a professor at Bentley College and a Guggenheim Fellow at Harvard University. Author of numerous technical and popular books on science, his last being Fermat's Last Theorem, his latest work, The Jesuit and the Skull, explores the life of Teilhard de Chardin and the Peking Man's Skull. Dr. Axel, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
2: Thank you. It's my pleasure to be on your show. It's
1: really a pleasure, and I think this is certainly a very fascinating book, and one I think that a lot of readers would find interesting, especially given the character of Teilhard de Chardin. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about Teilhard de Chardin.
2: Teilhard de Chardin is probably the most amazing individual I've come across in research over probably 20 years of doing science research. I'd written books about Einstein and the mathematician Cantor, who was actually very strange, and Descartes and many others. And TR really stays with me. The reason is that Tr was like nobody else. In well, Einstein was like nobody else, too, of course. But TR as a human being was different, not only as a scientist. He was born in 1881 uh, in central France, uh, near Clermont-Ferrand, which is uh, in the region called Auvergne, In south central France. And the family belonged to the nobility, the French nobility, uh, on the Teyard and the Chardin sides. It's the same side, his father's side. There are two names that were joined together. Several times they were ennobled by the French king uh, in the 1500s and earlier, even. And on his mother's side, he was related to Voltaire. So he's hmm. very much an aristocrat, French aristocrat. The family was very wealthy and old owned chateaux in the region. The father was a natural uh, historian, naturalist, who um, used to walk around his estates collecting things he found on the ground, you know, fossils, rocks, old pieces of iron, rusting iron, all kinds of things. And the son uh, inherited that hobby and, and passion from his father. The mother, uh, who was related to Voltaire, was very religious. And she inspired Pierre de Chardin to become religious, and then he went to a Jesuit college. And at some point, when he finished his education, he wrote a letter to his parents saying, I want to be a Jesuit priest. But this was a very strange priest, as priests go. He was extremely devout, and yet his view of the universe, which was influenced by his father, was not anything like what is expected of, you know, an organized religion, established, institutionalized religion. He believed in evolution, and he believed in the earth and the power of the earth, which later appeared in his writing as something that was pantheistic. So didn't believe in original sin, which is uh, one of the most important tenets of Catholicism. So he was a very strange priest, and that led to immense conflicts in his life. This uh, story really begins when he moves to Paris, but I'd like to add something about his early life mm. and sort of the crisis that may have initiated the problems that he was to suffer throughout the rest of his life. Mm. Um, he became a priest, and then World War I erupted. And This man, who could have stayed behind the front lines and, and served as a medic and stretcher-bearer, which is what he was, insisted on doing those duties on the front so he was right at the trenches at times within not too many feet from the german soldiers who were bombing them with explosives and and shells and also with poison gas so his soul was let's say uh, shattered by what he saw the cruelty that he saw in world war one and it made him write a, an essay called la vie cosmique which means cosmic life which he tried to get published by the jesuits and they didn't like it this was his first flashpoint with them they saw in it something that was pantheistic and not really religious and they thought this was a very strange priest at the end of the war he came to paris and started working with a person named Marcelin boule now boule was at the museum in paris which is now in the jardin des Plantes, in the center of paris right on the on the seine If your listeners know Paris, it's one of the most beautiful places in the city. It's a garden with all kinds of plants. And there was a lab for study of anatomy and fossils and paleontology and so forth. Uh, Marcelin Boulle was the most famous French scientist at the time in terms of natural science. He's the man who brought Neanderthal to the public consciousness and made him a uh, household name. He studied Neanderthal fossils, which had been discovered in Europe since the 1800s. So this was early 1900s, and he's the one who made Neanderthals come alive with being a caveman and so on. So the word Neanderthal sort of owes its widespread use to Marcelin Bull. Bull worked on, on fossils of all kinds, and the Chardin, who was getting a doctorate from the Sorbonne at the time, and this was uh, non-religious, this was in addition to his religious training as a priest, uh, actually had this, as his dissertation advisor the greatest paleontologist in France, and in the, one of the greatest in the world, so he was in the right place to become a paleontologist, and he studied various proto-monkeys that uh, skeletal remains had been discovered in France in the Paris Basin and in other parts of France, uh, about 50 million years old. And that started him on primate research and uh, and evolution. And that's when he started writing prodigiously about evolution and trying to understand it. And to him, which is really the amazing thing about the de Chardin, evolution was not at all in conflict with religion. Uh, He believed early on that when it says in the Bible, God created Adam and Eve and so on, this was just an allegory, a story, a a metaphor for something else. In his mind, it was a metaphor for evolution, and that God actually works in evolutionary terms, which was an amazing thing for a priest to believe. And certainly, uh, as
1: you mentioned several times in the book, that he came to clash with the Church uh, repeatedly and had to hide the belief.
2: Right. Clashes with the Church were becoming worse and worse. Before he was confirmed as a priest, they, they had some doubts about him because of La Vie Cosmique already, which was uh, written during the war. But they said, well, it's okay, he hasn't done anything bad. So he, he he became a priest. And once he became a member of the Society of Jesus, they couldn't get rid of him without serious action for you know through the vatican to defrock him and they never really had grounds for doing it despite his unorthodox views and he was a very loyal follower he was at some point he got a huge following in france early on in his career and the jesuits were very angry about that because here was one of their own promulgating views that were anathema to the church and they told him to go to china Uh, they had an infrastructure in china Jesuits were there since the sixteen hundreds converting people and and in schools and all kinds of things. So he was strongly encouraged to go to China for a year first and he went there in nineteen twenty three. And then they thought he's out of the public eye and they used some ways to induce him to go there. His sister was a missionary, had been a missionary in China and, and died there. And they thought he might want to visit her grave, and it was true. Indeed, he did want to visit her grave. He went there, spent some time with another priest who was a paleontologist outside Beijing in a city called Tianjin, who had a museum, and he worked with him. Uh, And this is the man who had been sending fossils to Paris to Boul and the others to study in Paris. And so he had been aware of all this uh, work and had uh, an acquaintance with this other priest named Lisan. Uh, Lisan would take him into the desert of Mongolia looking for fossils to send to Paris. And he found a good place there, but he always wanted to move back to Paris. So the Jesuits, at some point allowed him to go back to Paris. He came back, his following was growing, and he was speaking about evolution and against the original sin. And so he was sent with more of a command to go to china again uh, so his choice was either to leave the order which he didn't want to do he was a very loyal man or accept his fate so he was really an exile in china for twenty years and that's what brings us of course to the discovery of peking man he arrived there in uh, in one of his trips back to china in nineteen twenty nine just at the time where peking man uh, the remains of peking man the fossils of peking man were discovered And so he was there, and being a well-known paleontologist by that time, he was one of the most important members of the international team that discovered Peking Man.
1: Uh, There's sort of an interesting story uh, about the region where it was discovered, uh, Dragon Bone Hill, where the natives actually would grind up these bones. Exactly.
2: That region of China is very rich in fossils and the rural chinese would go to this place called dragon bone hill they named it dragon bone hill because they found bones there and they've been finding bones there for for generations and they assumed that these strange bones which were actually mostly of extinct animals giant elk and giant pigs and cave bears and all kinds of animals that don't exist anymore they thought these were dragons and dragons sort of represent strength vitality other good qualities in Chinese culture, and so they would grind these bones and uh, make them into potions that people would buy for anything from, I don't know, insomnia to impotence and skin rashes, all kinds of things. So science lost a lot of these fossils because people sold them, as, as they do nowadays with parts of tigers, and they really believe in the curative powers of natural elements like bones. and internal organs of living animals. So that's kind of a shame. Anyway, that also brought the the idea that there were fossils there to the consciousness of scientists who then would go there and start looking. And in the early part of the 20th century, a, a German scientist by the name of um, Haberer went there and actually found something in Dragonbone Hill. Later, some teeth were found that looked human. And so an international team came together over the years looking for the missing link between humans and apes, and the ancestors of the common ancestors of the apes and us. And they were convinced that this is the place to look. And Teilhard de Chardin was one of these people, since he was there for no fault of his own, so to speak, or for not, not really wanting to be there. He was there, and so they used his understanding and his knowledge to analyze the remains of Peking That It was actually a very big operation that took many years until the discovery in December 1929 of the first skull of Peking Man. But this was after seven years of uh, serious search in Dragonbone Hill and digging. It, it was a huge digging operation. When I visited the place, there were lots of trees around and uh, sort of uh, the, the, the place has been deserted. But in the 1920s, there were no trees. Everything was torn down and uh, people were digging in the earth in, in a huge operation that you don't see today. And this, they were just convinced because a couple of teeth had been discovered there that looked somewhat like those of humans uh, the swedish scientist by the name of anderson who got a lot of support from the uh, swedish royal family was able to dig there in search of uh, of a skull and a skull is really what these paleontologists were looking for because that would provide the ultimate evidence for the missing link homo erectus which was finally discovered in 1929
1: and the skull has a very uh, interesting history as well, I mean, after its discovery, uh, going through a uh, number of hands and disappearing as well, right?
2: Disappearing forever. This is one of the mysteries surrounding science, actually, <laughs> one of the greatest mysteries surrounding science, in that uh, not only one skull, but over the years since 1929, into the 30s, more bones, various bones of, of hominid body, were discovered there. Homo erectus, by the way, is a species, a very hardy species that survived for over a million years. It started in Africa, and migrated to Asia. Java Man, whose remains were discovered earlier in the 1800s in Java, was part of the same species, and also in Africa, and also uh, Peking Man are all uh, members of this species called Homo erectus which is really our ancestor. Perhaps not directly, according to various theories, there might have been an in-between species, Homo heidelbergensis, which uh, led to to us and, and Neanderthals. So this is certainly a missing link. This is not only one missing link, but this is a major missing link in the chain. And once all the remains of 40 individuals were discovered in Peking. In Java, it was much less than that, and the quality was much uh, lower. And there were two crates in which all of these fossils were put. The remains of 40 uh, different individuals that lived between 640,000 years ago to about um, a couple of hundred thousand years in this location, in this one cave on on Dragonbone Hill. And uh, there were two crates filled with these fossils, which were prepared in 1941 to be sent to the United States, to the American Museum of Natural History in New York, to be kept throughout the Second World War. But they disappeared, and as I said, this is an enduring mystery. Nobody has any idea where these are.
1: And how quickly did uh, Dishardin uh, realize that this was in fact a, a missing link piece, and how did it affect his philosophy, and how did he try and publicize these results?
2: Well, Teyar followed Darwin's writings, and he read others, such as Bergson, about evolution. He became a very strong believer in evolution. And he understood uh, that Homo erectus was a missing link. He thought that uh, his, his philosophy is that God works through evolutionary forces. He developed that theory further into the uh, Omega Point, which a theory that states that humans continue to evolve. And now we're evolving as an entire society, and we might continue that evolution to what he called the mega point, which is our our convergence toward the body of Christ. And that's how he could unite religion with paleontology and paleoanthropology. And he also believed in in newosphere, which is a sphere of ideas and, and information and knowledge, which is sort of a sphere he imagined as being on top of the biosphere, which is the biomass on Earth. So he developed these theories, which are very beautiful as theories, and added them sort of on top of uh, evolution, which is really a, a, a scientific theory. And with his philosophy, he sort of brings it a level higher into, say, somewhere between science and spirituality.
1: So we are only really slightly out of time, but I'm curious, as we sort of mentioned before, he constantly wrestled with the Church over many years over his ideas and, in fact, had to delay a lot of the publication of his work, one of them, the most famous being The Phenomenon of Man, which was published after his death and even then was still trying to be suppressed by the Church. If you could maybe describe a little bit more about him trying to wrestle between both his religious views and his
2: scientific views. Well, we can't underestimate the depth of this conflict between this man who, always viewed himself as a loyal priest and, and, a, and a devout man. He, he prayed very much with depth and with understanding of what he was supposed to do, and he would wake up early every day and, and do his duties as a priest. And yet the church all but disowned him, or tried to disown him, and they made his life miserable two ways. At some point, he actually had a heart attack when, when the conflict with his own church was, was at its height in Paris and he was not sleeping for weeks and uh, at some point he had a serious heart attack. They, they, they were fighting him on two levels. One of them is the physical level. They wanted him in China and after China fell to the Communists in '49, at the end of the war they were beginning to see that Communists will take over China. They allowed him to leave but he was allowed in France, his own country, only for a short period of time, a few months, and then he was sent to Africa where he agreed to go, because there are paleoanthropological sites there as well. And then from there, he came to the United States, where he wasn't received with much interest. He lived in a small room, and when he died, actually was talking to somebody about it yesterday, a Jesuit who knew him. And he died in New York, and he was buried, and they misspelled the name on his gravesite on <laughs> <It's laughs> gravestone. It's, it's awful. Anyway, the second way were, the Jesuits were fighting him was not to allow the publication of his books. Phenomenon of Man was his most important book, and then there's Divine Milieu and many others. He wrote quite a number of books, and like any academic today, he wanted to publish very, very much, and he was not allowed to be published. Uh, when I went to the Vatican to see the documents there, there were all his manuscripts. They were typed by his friend uh, Lucille Swan, an American sculptress in China, with, with letters from him requesting Permission to publish, and they were always denied. So all these wonderful books were published only after his death. And there was a trick that he did, suggested by a friend in Paris, which allowed them to be published after his death. Because they could, it's possible that it would they. It was possible that they would never be published, mm. but he bequeathed them to a, a friend of his in Europe, uh, in France, named Jean Mortier. And uh, she was able to, since they belonged to her, once he died, she inherited them. She could publish them. So mm-hmm. that was the trick. But, uh, otherwise, they would never have would have been published.
1: Well, In the end, I guess we probably can't close without mentioning it's the strange relationship he had with women in his life.
2: Yes, there was uh, indeed a strange relationship. Uh, Lucille Swan, who typed his manuscript for him, which he then requested permission to publish, was very close to him, but what's interesting about Tr is that when he was growing up, he had very close relationships to women in his family, which were, of course, platonic. They were his relatives, he had very sisters, he came from a very large family, his sisters were very close to him, and his cousins were very close to him, and so he was used to having relationships with women that were very, very close and yet uh, platonic. And so he met this sculptress, Lucille Swan, who was a very strong woman had just gotten divorced, and she wanted to get married or at least to have a fulfilling physical relationship, and that's quite clear in her letters to him. Uh, She doesn't hold anything back in terms of what she wants, and uh, he just had to say no, and from everything we know, he didn't break that vow of chastity for her. Uh, She got frustrated after 20 years of uh, this relationship with him, and uh, the relationship soured, then he met another woman, uh, Rhoda de Terra, who was divorced from his close friend uh, de Terra, a German-American scientist, and he had the same relationship with her, very close, but then would have liked him to maybe stop being a priest and marry them, but he wouldn't.
1: I'm curious, after uh, your investigation of the man, what's your impression, and how did you become interested in him in the first place?
2: Uh, that's a good question. My father was a ship's captain in the Mediterranean, met uh, in one of his cruises a uh, high French religious authority who was a close friend of Teilhard de Chardin, and he lent my father some of his books, uh, in particular The Divine Milieu, and my father was very much taken by Teilhard's writings. Uh, this was many years ago, and my father is no longer alive. I went to China a couple of years ago, in 2005 to research a science topic about China, because I, I thought it would be an interesting country to study, and listeners might know I, I always write about physics, mathematics, hard sciences. And then I came upon the story of Peking Man, and Teilhard de Chardin was all over <laughs> this story. And so it was clear to me that
1: that should be my next book. Well, it really is a very fascinating story, and I, I hope people go out and take a look at uh, your new book, which, of course, is The Jesuit and the Skull. Terra de Peking Man in the Skull. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
1: This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. All right, we're back, and we're ready to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. The, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, highly evolved or still evolving. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they are highly evolved or if they're still evolving. Dr. Axel, are you ready to play the game? Yes. Okay, here we go. Person number one, highly evolved or still evolving, oj simpson still evolving if <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's right
1: all right number two is apple founder steve jobs
2: highly evolved
1: certainly his products seem to be
2: well his products are evolving but i think he's evolved <laughs> in that he can create products that are always evolving so he must be at the higher level all <laughs> right he's directing their evolution <laughs> right uh okay number three uh, charles Darwin. I'd have to say highly evolved since he understood evolution. And in order to understand evolution, you have to be highly evolved. Uh,
1: okay, number four is the home run slugger of this Barry Bonds. Still evolving.
2: In sports, you always evolve. Indeed. <laughs>
1: uh, and finally, number five, the President of the United States, George Bush.
2: Still evolving. I don't think he knows with certainty how to proceed uh, on on so many fronts, so he still has a lot to learn. <laughs> All
1: right. uh, Well, Dr. Exel, I do want to thank you for uh, sticking around and playing our game.
2: Good. Thank you. This was fun.
1: All right. Well, thank you. And, of course, your new book, again, is The the Jesuit and the Skull, and I hope people will go take a look at that. Great. Thank you.
2: And that's all for this week's
0: edition of Berkeley Grox.
1: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
0: If you'd like to contact us here at you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.